Hello and welcome to the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast, member of the ANA Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Berberich. Innovation is a magical, ephemeral process in which several artsy people gather in a conference room and brainstorm until they run out of post-it notes. Just kidding. Innovation is a process like any other, grounded in concrete, repeatable steps that just about anyone can learn and ultimately perfect. So, if that's the case, why are so many marketers struggling to drive meaningful innovation within their organizations? Our guest today has a pretty good idea. Tony Elwick, CEO and founder of Stratagen, has developed a process he calls outcome-driven innovation, which starts with customer needs and ends with solutions that move the needle for brands. Tony and I unpack why innovation efforts so often go astray and discuss the steps marketers can take to truly master the practice. Let's start the show. All right, everybody. We are in the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast virtual studio, and I'm excited. Today on the pod, we have Tony Ulwick, the founder and the CEO of Stratagen. Tony, thanks so much for taking some time and chatting with us today. Michael, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Now, before we jump in, and this is one of my favorite kinds of episodes because we're going to roll our sleeves up and we're going to get real into the, the nitty gritty of innovation today. We are going light years past the shiny objects. We're getting to the real deal. But before we get to the fun stuff, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and how your journey led you to found Stratagen? Yeah, happy to. Um, so I started my career back at IBM in the mid-1980s, and I was working on a product called the IBM PC Junior, which was uh, supposedly IBM's entree into the home computer market. Now, uh, unfortunately, the day after the product was introduced, the headlines in the Wall Street Journal read, the PC Junior is a flop. Ugh, that's quick. That's a turnaround right there. That, that was fast. You know, that's funny, Michael, because that's what I thought. It's like, how did they know that? already. Well, we just put the product up yesterday and today they're declaring it a flop. And I thought, well, either they're right or or we're right. We'll find out. Well, we quickly found out they were right. And um, what occurred to me is how did they know that? Right? How did they know so quickly that um, it was going to fail? Clearly, they were using some set of metrics that we weren't using to create the product. Mm. But my, my thought was, it really would have been nice if we talked to them a, a week ago or two weeks ago and they told us this, right? Or better yet, it had been great if we knew this a year ago or two years ago before we started creating the product so that we could then create the product around the metrics they're going to use to judge its value. And the headline would be, you know, the PC Junior's greatest thing since sliced bread. So that set me down this path. I spent my last five or six years in IBM on their product planning team uh, trying to come up with a better way to innovate. At that time, it was quite interesting because that was when voice of the customer was brand new and QFD or quality function deployment, uh, the house of quality, uh, conjoint analysis. So we studied all of this, but I quickly realized that there really was no cohesive innovation process that existed. And you know, what we found is that not only did IBM fail uh, and uh, you know, every company was failing at innovation and they still fail today. So uh, my goal was to create an innovation process that would mitigate the risk of failure. And that's how I've spent my career. I just That's what I think about day in and day out for the last 35 uh, years. So 
hopefully we'll dig into some of those details here uh, in the next few minutes. I was about to say, Tony, we are kindred spirits because that is definitely the mission I've been on, uh, especially since the founding of Marketing Futures. It's to get this innovation thing, you know, pull it out from uh, the sky, from this ephemeral thing and really get to work on it. So as you basically just kind of laid out, you are on a mission to change the way the world innovates. And, you know, I saw that pop up when I was doing some research on you and I'm like, all right, we've got to chat and it's got to be for the entire Marketing Futures listenership. So how are people pursuing innovation now and why does it need to be changed? Why isn't it producing the results they want? Well, that's a great question. Uh, you know, innovation success rates are, are low, right? So the question is, well, why does that happen? Um, you know, I'd like to go back to the beginning uh, and gain agreement on what we even mean by innovation, because mm -hmm. uh, that's where the problem starts. Uh, what is innovation? So I'll, I'll give my definition, and it's quite simple. It's creating products and services uh, that satisfy unmet customer needs. At that level, it sounds pretty simple. And that's what all companies are trying to do. There's only two inputs in the process, uh, solutions and needs. And you know, I think everyone knows we're great at coming up with solutions. So maybe that's not the problem. Um, and what I found is that uh, most companies come at innovation from more of a, an ideas first approach where they, that's what they think innovation is all about. Coming up with the ideas and then testing them in the market, experimenting, iterating, pivoting. Uh, they view it as um, experimentation, uh, as an inherently uh, iterative process that you can't, cannot possibly get right the first time. And if you uh, use the ideas first approach, you can't, right? Because <laughs> the chances of you randomly guessing at a product concept, you're just inventing it in your head, that addresses the top 10 unmet needs in a market are, are slim to none, right? So th that means that uh, companies have to approach it from the other angle, which is a needs first approach to innovation, which brings up the key issue. Uh, you know, we've done a lot of research on this and we find that in, on 90% of all product teams, get this, Michael, on 90% of all product teams, there isn't agreement on what a customer need even is. That's wild to me. So, so here everyone is, you know, I, I think everyone agrees they're trying to create solutions that address unmet needs. But if we can't agree on what a need is, then how can we agree on what the needs are? How can we agree on which needs are unmet? How can we agree on what solutions we should go pursue? Right? And I think this is why innovation is in the state that it's in today, because there is no agreement on how to best define a need. In fact, we, uh, we did some research with the top uh, 15 VOC practitioners and um, looked at how they define customer needs. 15 practitioners, 15 different definitions. My goodness. So it's, it's not just product teams that don't agree, just in general across the industry, there's no science behind it. So that's where we started focusing is uh, solving this issue, right? So this is the way, this is the, the journey that you, you kind of set forth on. You, you see where the problem is. And so you developed a new approach, uh, something called outcome-driven innovation. I would love to hear a little bit of the backstory of how you developed the process. And when you're bringing this to a company and it's the, the early stages and they know they need help and that's about all they know in innovation terms, uh, what are the first steps that, that you do to really establish and start building outcome-driven innovation within organizations? So uh, outcome-driven innovation is a innovation process. This is the way we think about it. 
and at a high level, it's a it's a simple process. Uh, we define a market. Uh, we find we define the customer's needs within the market. We uncover the needs that are unmet. We segment the market around the unmet needs to see if there are segments of people with different unmet needs. And then once we have that information, we fine tune solutions that are targeted different segments to address different unmet needs. Simple enough, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, as I mentioned before, in, in most organizations, there isn't agreement on what a need is. And this took us down a path to uh, figure out, well, how should a need be defined? And needs are interesting. They're words, right? They're words that customers hopefully say that can get translated into innovation. And what we spent a lot of time thinking through is what are the, the characteristics of the perfect need statement? And we came up with our list. Mm. It's, there's about 10 different items. I'll rattle off a few. But first off, they have to be stable over time. Right. In my IBM PC Junior days, we learned that lesson because we, we asked customers what they wanted. We built what they wanted. Two years later, it wasn't what they wanted. Right? So we're, you know, we can't be aiming at a moving target. Right? Uh, these statements have to be measurable and controllable in the design of the product or actionable. You have to be able to do something with them. They have to be unambiguous so that marketing and sales development R&D can all agree that this is the set of needs. Uh, they, they have to be valid across all geographies. So mm -hmm. we're not coming up with different sets of needs for different countries around the world, right? And I can go on, but um, they put a lot of pressure on figuring out, well, what what is the perfect need statement? And uh, what we concluded is if you change the unit of analysis, you can define needs in a much different way. And let me explain that. It goes back to uh, Levitt's saying, you know, people didn't want or don't want the quarter inch drill, they want the quarter inch hole. Mm -hmm. That was uh, in HBR back in 1962. So this is not new news, right? right? But what it does is that opens the door to a different perspective, right? It, it helps you think through why people buy products in the first place, right? They're not buying products for the sake of having the product, they're buying a product to get a job done right, is the way we like saying that today, right? Mm -hmm. They're using the product to execute some underlying, underlying process. And if we study the underlying process they're trying to execute, instead of talking about products, it gives us a different perspective, right? So now, instead of defining a market around the use case or a application or a technology or a product, we can define a market as a group of people trying to get a job done like parents trying to pass on life lessons to children or a surgeon trying to repair a rotator cuff. You know, they constitute a market. Through that lens, then we can say, well, then we can define customer needs, uh, not as exciters and delighters and specs and requirements, but we can define them as the metrics that people use to measure success as they go about and get that job done. It's their measurable outcomes. Like when you cook a meal, for example, you want to minimize the likelihood of overcooking the meal or undercooking the meal. These are your measurable outcomes that go along with getting the job done perfectly. We learned that we can then prioritize those using quantitative research because people can tell us which outcomes are really important to them, but not well satisfied with today's solutions. So we can quantify which of the 50 or 100 needs in a given market are underserved, as we say, they're important, but they're not well satisfied. Well, if we can pinpoint you know, the top 10 unmet needs in a market, then we can go create solutions that will address those needs. And then the fourth piece, which is really critical, is it gave us a new way to segment markets. Because most companies 
to segment markets so they can find segments of people with different unmet needs, but, but they use proxies. In other words, they'll use demographics or psychographics. They'll use uh, use cases and personas. And what they're trying to do, or they're making the assumption that by putting people in these segments, uh, you can go after them separately with separate offerings with separate value propositions, and it would be really efficient. It turns out that um, in most cases, they're, they're just making a big mistake. And the reason they go after the proxy instead of segmenting around needs is because there's not agreement on what a need is or what the needs are, which needs are unmet. But we've solved all that. So once you solve that, you can quite literally directly segment the market around unmet needs. And you can find, for example, that you know half the population thinks that minimizing the likelihood of overcooking a meal is really important and satisfied, and the other half doesn't. Well, if that's the case, you're going to have very different strategies going after those two different target customers. Right. But we segment around the needs, and then we can figure out, well, why are these people struggling in unique and different ways? And then we have all those insights to go build the strategy. And then the final step in the process is to take all those inputs and better position the products that you currently have in the market, uh, improve the products that you have in the market, fill gaps in the portfolio. And we have examples of all these uh, that are uh, you know, consistently the output of the ODI process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just love this because for a, a lot of different reasons, a listeners, doesn't this sound like a way less stressful way to innovate instead of just trying to pick, you know, a number between one and 17 trillion and really hoping you get it. But the other thing that I think that really this helps spell out is innovation is not owned by the artsy types and the loud, uh, you know, idea out there. It's a process. It's a muscle that can be exercised. Uh, and I think that this mindset is just kind of clarity of vision and real. We like to throw around reverse engineering a lot. Uh, this is it in an actual fundamental human psychology level you know, Maslow, come on now, we've, we've been talking about needs for quite some time. Uh, but I think that, yeah, a lot of this has been obfuscated in the, the past decades. So I love that as a beginning. So now we've got our mindset, right? We have the need set. We've got kind of the way we're going to think about it. What is the next obstacle that most organizations need to overcome? Great question, Michael. After, after mindset, which we covered, right, uh, then it's really tool set. Because Going back to my IBM days as well, VOC, conjoint analysis, and so on. Uh, many of these tools that were created and many of the research tools that have been used ever since uh, are created with a solutions mindset. It's the tools are created in the old mindset. People are asked to make comparisons, make trade-offs, forced choice, paired comparisons. These are techniques and research where you're asking people to make trade-offs. Now, you would only do that in solution space. Like you'd only do that if you could have this feature or that feature and you're saying, well, which mm -hmm. feature do you want or don't want? When it comes to customer needs, there's no trade-off, right? People may want, they may have 10 unsatisfied needs. They're all unsatisfied. They want them all mm -hmm. better satisfied. So you, you shouldn't be making trade-offs in uh, need space. You only make trade-offs in solution space once you know what the unmet needs are. So what we see is uh, many of the tools that are used uh, by research groups today are built in solution space. And there's very few tools that are designed to um, accommodate a needs first approach to innovation. That requires change. And, mm -hmm. and it's hard to get uh, companies to adopt 
new mindset and a new tool set. So that turns out to be the second barrier. And it's often the case that the, uh, the internal research uh, organizations, you know, push back a little bit on some of these methods and rightfully so, you know, they want to make sure that they're justified and that they work and so on. Mm-hmm. And that can take some time before an organization uh, can, you know, can adopt them. ANA Marketing Futures and Demand Metric are proud to present the Future of Marketing Report, A Road to Hypergrowth. Our research revealed two starkly different groups of marketers, hypergrowth marketers who are poised to win in the short and long term, and laggard marketers who are adrift in a sea of uncertainty and stagnancy. This report is aimed to capture and share crucial insights that will help all marketers prepared for the future, regardless of their sophistication and the uncertainty that transcends the world. To get your copy, visit ana.net slash hypergrowth. And that's very, it's relatable because that's, that would be for a marketing researcher, uh, for product research, like that's a sea change. You know what I mean? There are things that you've been doing for years and years and years that may, you know, in a short time fall to the wayside almost completely, but really you're looking for insights when you're doing research, you know, ultimately you're looking to find something that opens your mind to new possibilities. And in the solution space, it's really presumptive. I'm giving you these two choices. You've already skipped ahead of, oh, you you only need one of two things. So which of it is? That's a really haughty thing to just start as a given. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah I think it, it could be, you know, growing pains and certainly not something that happens quickly. But as we learn more and more on the podcast and throughout the Marketing Futures program, innovation only looks quick to people who are not in the process. You are seeing the very tippy top of a very, very large iceberg. So, okay, we've got the mindset. We've done some of the the, the hard work and now we're in the need state using some tools that are calibrated toward that mindset. Uh, so how do we bring all of this into action? Yeah, so uh, employing an organization, of course, uh, requires uh, new mindset, new tool set and a process. And we bring the ODI process to organizations that already exist, so they don't have to recreate the process. They simply have to accept it and adopt it, right? So how does that work? So um, companies often come to us and say, well, there's two, I'll give you two examples, an existing company and then a startup. But an existing company may come to us and say, hey, we're, we're a billion dollar company now. Um, we need to get to $2 billion in five years. How are we going to get there? Right. So that means they have to grow in their core markets and they have to invest in some adjacent markets and maybe even some brand new markets. And they have to do it efficiently as well. Right. They don't want to they don't want to make 10 bets to get one hit. They'd like mm-hmm. to make 10 bets and get eight hits. Right. And that's the difference with our approach as well. So what we generally start with is an education at the uh, at the executive level mm-hmm. uh, t- to get them on the path so that we can create a top-down uh, mindset shift. And then we work with some teams that may want to run uh, pilots that will go from the bottom up, you know, a team that's excited or a team that's struggling, you know, that's trying to turn around their business and uh, apply it there. And we just follow the approach. We define the market as a group, a group of people getting a job done. We identify the unmet needs, figure out which are unmet, if there's segments of people with different unmet needs, and then work with the team 
to find what I like to call the most efficient path to growth. And I love this concept. Uh, and the, it, it really appeals to the engineer in me, right? Because, because there, there is the most efficient path to growth. If you think about it, it's uh, trying to figure out what are the fewest number of things we can do to have the greatest impact on the biggest customer population. Now, the way to do that, if you know all the unmet needs and which are unmet by how much, what you're trying to figure out is which unmet needs are so unmet and so valuable to a big population that we want to focus on those first. Mm -hmm. So we have all that data. So, so once we do all that work prior to this, we can start laying out what a company needs to do to, to leapfrog the competition, right? We can go outcome by outcome and figure out how much improvement they have to make along all these different dimensions. We know the strengths and weaknesses of different competitors and where uh, they can you know, leapfrog them and so on. So if we discover 20 unmet needs or so, for example, we can help them pick out the 10 unmet needs that they need to go address right now in order to secure themselves this unique and valued competitive position. And then the following year, focus on these next three unmet needs. And the next year, these next three or next four and so on. And so they're creating this most efficient path to growth that they can follow pretty much in roadmap format for years to come because it's focusing them consistently on what matters most to the customer. And I feel like this is I can be applied on a lot of different levels. I feel like you can apply that organizationally, but this could be its own product, like its built-in product map. You know what I mean? You could innovate on a product by that need hierarchy for a decade without really having to reinvent the wheel or re revisit these things. Well, that's exactly right. Now we helped a company, uh, Kroll on Track uh, is a good example. Uh, we helped Kroll on Track enter the electronic evidence discovery market. Mm. And uh, they had two failed attempts before they came to us and said, we got to figure this out. You know, they, they had a great advantage because they had a technology that could take data off of hard drives. And it was uh, part of a data recovery market they'd been in for years. And um, they, they thought they could just strip data off hard drives and it'd be useful for legal teams who are trying to find data that could support refute a case. But in our research, we discovered that taking the data off the hard drive was only a small part of the job, right? What the legal team wanted to do was to be able to search through it, find information that would either support or refute the case. So without a search capability, uh, the tool was pretty much useless. And uh, we uh, helped them architect a solution that would get more of the job done. Uh, they were very successful entering the market. We discovered about 60 unmet needs. And wow. uh, their first iteration of the product satisfied about 25 of them. Uh, that put them in a great and uh, enviable position for years. They were in the Gartner Magic Quadrant for about 15 years as the market leader. Not bad. And, and the way they did this, Michael, I, I think you'll appreciate this, is year after year, they just went down the list. Now, now what are the most unmet needs? And now what are the most unmet? And they just went down that list. I got a call from them about 10 years later. And they said, Tony, you know what? We're, we're out. Um, we, we need something else. What do we do next? <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's amazing though. Well, the point's well taken because markets, when defined through this lens, are stable over time, right? And the metrics people use to judge value are stable over time. So it gives you a long-term focal point for value creation. So uh, once you have this information, it's really an asset that the organization can use for years. And startups find the same thing, right? So in the lean startup movement, for example, uh, there is no market definition step. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, entrepreneurs are typically asked to hypothesize the market, uh, the product, and the value proposition all at the same time, right? So they hypothesize them, then they go do their customer discovery, and they're trying to solve an extraordinarily complex equation. And uh, the reason it's so hard is because the market's not defined, it's not fixed, it's not fixed in the equation. Mm-hmm. So what we recommend uh, to startups is that they uh, begin the process or add a step in front of lean startup that defines the market. Let's define the market as a group of people and the job they're trying to get done. So if you anchor on that, then when you do your needs discovery, you're not changing the market as you do your needs discovery, it's, it's fixed in the equation. And now you can come up with the needs and then those needs get fixed in the equation. And now you can come up with your solution, right? As opposed to having nothing fixed in the equation. I, and honestly, this is, so I always say to be agile, you need a good foundation. You know, you can't be jumping around and going crazy on a shaky foundation. And I just feel like this, you know, having that fixed, knowing what needs are, knowing how to delve down to the level of where it isn't fluctuating from day to day, I think that allows you to pivot more because you've got the focus in turn. You know, you're just trying to make that quarter inch hole. And okay, so now, you know, drill materials become too too expensive. I don't care. I'm not in the drill making business. I'm in the hole making business. And it's just, I think it really does, I think, at first I was like, wow, you can really make a 10 year plan and just sit back and kick back. And obviously the world's not going to let you do that, but you've got the focus point and that's not going anywhere. So I think this really does uh, ironically lend itself to agility and pivoting and, and making big, quick moves uh, because your eyes never off the ball. That's right. In, in the startup space, what they're trying to figure out is, you know, what is the minimum viable product? How can I get that product market fit? And then once you're in the market, how do I keep growing, right? How do I stay in the lead, right? And what I'm describing here is a method that does both, right? It helps you get in the market, much like Crawlontrack did, even though they were a big company, mm-hmm. they, they can approach it as a startup. And, you know, and then once you're there, what do you do to stay out in front, right? You, you got to get the next round of investor funding. You, you need a plan that's going to uh, lay out how you're going to get there. And so we see a lot of startups using the approach, uh, not only to guide their uh, efforts, but to help them secure the next round of funding as well, because they go into their investors with a with a plan that's right. based on data from the customers that they're targeting for value creation. Through the ANA Educational Foundations, give the gift of an ANA University membership program. Your company can donate an ANA membership to the university of your choice. Your donation will empower the next generation of marketing talent, as well as establish a potential pipeline for your brand's next rising stars. For more information, contact Marnie Gordon at mg at aef.com. So I have to imagine that you've had a lot of breakthrough, oh my God, like, thank you, I've been driving myself crazy about this moments throughout your career. But I have a question, and I think the the two of us are probably kind of always scratching our heads a little bit on this one. But so innovation is a huge focus, uh, particularly in marketing. It's, you know, my whole job. With the answer to this mystery of innovation seemingly here, you know what I mean? This isn't... Um, our listeners are getting all of this. They, I, If you don't have a notepad by now, pause this, go get your notepad. Start it from the beginning because the approach is here. The mindset is here. 
with the mystery seemingly solved, why do you think so many marketers are still in brainstorming purgatory? That's a great question. Uh, and we covered some of the issues, right? It's a, mm -hmm. it's a mindset. It's a tool set. It's a process. Um, and quite honestly, I think it's really fun to brainstorm ideas. It really is. Uh, there's no risk, right? There's no bad idea. Mm -hmm. So you can okay. just lay out all the ideas. But now some someone's got to come behind them and figure out well, which of those ideas are really valuable to the customer. So, I mean, we could say that that's uh, you know, part of the reason, but I, but I really think that, uh, that marketing, see, this comes down to who's responsible for innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, marketing, it depends how you define this, but uh, and I'll be careful here, but uh, marketing generally is not responsible for innovation. They're responsible for demand generation, right? The product already exists. Mm -hmm. Right. There might yes. be another team who is responsible for new product creation, and that could be upstream marketing. That's the way it's defined in some companies. So some companies have marketing uh, people responsible for product definition. Um, some people have nobody responsible for product definition mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and then everything in between, you know, product managers might be, uh, you know, product planning teams might be uh, strategists and so on. So, uh, you know, I think marketing teams, um, uh, you know, their tool sets and their mindset is, is more about demand creation. You know, how do I sell more of what I already have? And so uh, even when marketers apply jobs to be done, um, and this is still a valid approach, but it's half the approach, right? But mm -hmm. what marketers will do with jobs to be done is they'll go figure out, well, why did somebody buy my product? You know, why did they buy that pizza? And they'll figure out, well, that was a use case. You know, they were running late after work, they were starving, uh, they're going home by themselves, uh, they just wanted something to eat quickly and in private that they could, you know, get some sustenance quickly. All right, well, great. Well, now that they know that story of that use case, then they may want to try to target pizza, their pizza at other people in that use case, right? Mm -hmm. And they're, what they're trying to do is to find applications or jobs, if you will, that tie the product back to what people are trying to accomplish. Now, while that may help sell more product, it doesn't help create the next breakthrough pizza, right? right. And, and I think that's the difference, right? So you have much of the marketing discipline more in a demand creation mindset as opposed to a product creation mindset. And what, what we find is companies are, in general, companies are great at developing products. They're great at marketing products. They're just not the right products. Right. So all we're trying to do is fix this little piece on the front end here that says, if you, could just, <laughs> if, if you could only put great products in development, you'd be in great shape. So instead mm -hmm. of putting 10 products into development and one popping out being as a hit on the back end, let's only put great products in. So how do you do that? Well, you have to know up front that the product that you've conceptualized is going to satisfy the top 10, 15 unmet needs in a given market. You need that evidence before you go say, yes, we're going to go put money in that product. And that's what the outcome-driven innovation process delivers. Right? Mm -hmm. Do you think part of it is that because this, this kind of integration, this plug-in happens at the very beginning and therefore has a ripple effect through everything an organization does, does it become kind of like standing at the base of Mount Olympus sometimes, or, or Mount Everest sometimes? I'll use an actual mountain that exists. Uh, Mount Everest sometimes. Is this like, you know, have you had 
uh, clients or worked with organizations where this was all a bit too intimidating for them? Or is it, um, what are some of the kind of human level challenges you've seen while, while working with organizations? Well, there's a number, right? And so we covered a few, right? Get the right mm -hmm, mindset, mm -hmm. get the right tool set. Let's say they go through the process and they have the data. So the next challenge is taking this data and using it. Now, this sounds a bit funny, and I, it surprised me when I started recognizing this, but um, I always thought that if you could point out to uh, a product team the top 10 unmet needs in the market, that they would get to work very quickly and go satisfy those top 10 unmet needs. But th be because they're not used to seeing needs in this format, mm -hmm. they don't know what to do with them. So what, what it requires in this next step is to help people recognize how to transform a need into an innovation, right? And we have a process for that. So what we generally do is work with them to, you know, we state the need, like minimize the likelihood of overcooking the meal. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's figure out, well, what's the root cause of overcooking the meal? Did I set it at the wrong temperature? Did I set it for the wrong timing? Uh, was the you know, was it thinner a proportion than it sh than it could have been? There's the root cause. So let's look at root cause analysis and then figure out, well, how are those problems solved today, right? And then what's the best solution? You know, how can I increase the level of satisfaction? How can I minimize the likelihood of overcooking the meal for the least cost, effort, and technical risk? And I may have four or five optional solutions and I can work through them and come up with the one that will get the job done best, and that becomes my feature for that particular outcome. And then I follow that same process for the next outcome and mm -hmm. the next outcome. When we took the uh, Bosch circular saw team through this exercise, uh, there were 14 unmet needs in a segment that they went after to uh, win over the uh, North American circular saw market. Uh, it was interesting because it only took them three hours to conceptualize what became the CS20 circular saw. They went through outcome by outcome. <laughs> and the funny thing about this, Michael, is, as they said, uh, the problem is, you know, we, you know, isn't that we haven't had these ideas before because we've had all these ideas. The problem is we've had thousands of ideas. Mm -hmm. and, and we didn't know that these were the ideas that really matter most to customers. Yeah. We find this in most organizations. You know, there's not a shortage of ideas. It's just the lack of understanding and agreement of what a need is and so on. And this is what I view uh, to be truly transformational. If you can take a product team where there is no agreement on what a need is and transform them into a team where they all agree on what the needs are and which needs are met, they are going to work very diligently to go create value for the customer. Right? Mm -hmm. They're going to do the right things. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just bridging that gap that is the key to success at innovation. Like I said up front, you know, innovation sounds simple on the surface. We're just trying to come up with solutions that address unmet needs. It's just that we have to agree on what those unmet needs are. Tony, if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to kind of shift a little bit and ask you some questions that we ask all of our guests here at the Marketing Futures Podcast. Um, the first one, very deliberately, we leave this open because we just like to get a lot of smart people's opinions. You certainly qualify in that. So um, what are your thoughts around diversity, equity, and inclusion? Let me start. Let me come back with a question. How many, how many born innovators do you think there are? 
my personal belief or what yeah. the, the the conventional idea of yeah or even you know who would you consider a born innovator see i believe because i'm also uh what one would call a creative type um in my second life i don't think that anybody on earth was ever not creative or not innovative. I think yeah. that there's a, uh, I think it's Albert Einstein, but I saw it uh, uh, online. So who knows what this, who the quote actually is from, but you know, everyone's a genius, but if you judge a fish on its capacity to climb a tree, it's going to spend the rest of its life thinking it's an idiot. So in my, I think everybody's a born innovator. And I think this is kind of, this conversation really illuminated that, at least for me. I love the way you said that because, you know, to answer your question, you know, when uh, most people ask that, they'd say, you know, Steve Jobs or Thomas Edison and, mm -hmm. or Elon Musk. But, you know, these folks have all failed at innovation, right? And uh, Thomas Edison's story is his first iteration was a big failure. Mm -hmm. And he said, I will never again create a product that customers don't want. And he didn't. And uh, he learned how to be a board innovator, right? And to your point, there's no such thing as a born innovator, right? Everyone has mm -hmm. to learn. And that's what I like about our approach because it democratizes innovation. So there is diversity, there's equity, there's inclusion. I believe that too. Uh, we can all be born innovators, right? We all have it in us. I think what separates um, you know, the, the really successful innovators from the rest are just this inherent uh, ability to view innovation through the lens we've described today. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that's it. And for more complex products, it's, you know, uh, you know, you really have to have a, a mindset like with Steve Jobs inventing the, the iPod or, or the iPhone. These are complicated platform level products. His understanding of customer needs was fantastic, right? And um, you could argue that he's using a process similar to what we're describing here. Otherwise, he would never have been able to come up with a solution that was so successful so quickly, right? He was using a process. What we're trying to do is to figure out, well, what is that process that democratizes innovation so that so everyone can be the born innovator? And that's one thing that gets me up every morning is thinking that, uh, you know, how can we get this kind of thinking in everyone's hands so that we can enrich people's lives through innovation? I love that. I love that. Uh, just the idea of, yeah, empowering everybody with the ability to innovate I think it's just a really powerful tool because when you start up thinking about it that way, that can be a mindset that you use to approach a lot of different things, not just in business. Yeah. Sorry. I know I keep going over this, but I'm really, there's something about this process that I really am like latching onto. And yeah, I'm going to just, I'm going to pick something to innovate around the house tonight. Uh, I'm sure there's enough unmet needs in my apartment. Um, Donny, so this uh, question either brings our guests, uh, you know, to their knees, or it's the easiest question they've ever asked. So I'm just going to go ahead and hit you with it. Tony Elwick, founder and CEO of Stratagen. What is your favorite album of all time and why? Album of all time. Well, when you say album, that takes my mind back to when they were actually, you know, LPs, mm -hmm. albums, mm -hmm. and um, and I do have a favorite. Uh, it's uh, Santana's Greatest Hits. Oh my goodness! Uh, yes, now, yes. Now, now the reason why, uh, you know, I I recently I've seen Santana, I don't know, maybe seven or eight times uh, throughout my life, and what I've always liked about that album is the way it was technically created the percussion, the sounds, the engineering that went into it. 
it still sounds exactly the same way today when you hear it with all the newer, greater technology, but it still sounds exactly like, you can go back and listen to that album and wonder how are they so good mm. at producing that album uh, with a set of sounds that are truly timeless. And, yeah. uh, and, and they're using real instruments, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And you, you compare that to the electronic music of today, and I'd still argue that they did a better job of, uh, of architecting their songs and, and getting their sounds down. It's just, it, it brings me joy. I love that answer because my best friend in high school and I used to drive around and we had that CD. We weren't uh, rocking the LP in the, uh, the car, but we used to blast that CD and it just had this, I think you're absolutely right. It had the, the essence and the feeling of the, the 70s and 60s, but, it, but the sound was so crisp. And as a music producer myself, like it is, I, I can absolutely uh, uh, vouch and, and co-sign that, that it feels like it was mixed and mastered five years ago. But um, yeah, it just crisp as, crisp as the air. So Tony, we have one more question, but before we do, if people are as excited as I am for out, uh, outcome-driven innovation, uh, how can they get in touch with you? How can they learn more about Stratagen? Well, they can get in touch with me at Ulwick, um, U-L-W-I-C-K, at Stratagen.com. Uh, they could contact info at Stratagen.com. Uh, uh, our website has a lot of great information on it. There's a resource center. That's at Stratagen.com. I have a medium site, jobstobedone.com. And we have a free audiobook and ebook as well at jobstobedonebook.com. So a lot of uh, a lot of places to go to go look to learn more. I was about to say, go out there, get smarter, reach out to the gang at Stratagen. Um, all right. So before we uh, let you off into this good day, uh, let's bring it up to the present. Is there anything you're listening to now, be it an artist, a song, a podcast? Maybe there's a book you're reading. What's revving your engines these days? You know, um, if you saw my desk here, I have a few books around and uh, over on the right here, I have uh, a number of, of uh, Harvard, Harvard Business Review uh, magazines. And um, I, I've been subscribing to HBR uh, since the early 1980s. And uh, I haven't missed an issue. And I, I just, uh, not to plug them. <laughs> No, that's fine. I get the Harvard uh, management tip of the day every morning in my inbox. I, I love it too. So you're good. Yeah, but I, I really enjoy the uh, uh, the breadth and depth of discussion and the new ideas. They're usually on the cutting edge of things. So I read that just to stay on top of my game, basically, to see how other people are thinking about innovation and uh, you know, see what I can learn. And also to see how can I apply uh, uh, the ODI process in different ways as well like to market selection or to M&A evaluation or to R&D investment decisions and, and so on. So it's, it's fun just thinking through, you know, cutting edge ways to bring innovation to, to, to really all aspects of, of business. I love it. And a very appropriate answer to a, a gentleman whose journey is never quite finished, even uh, as far as you've gotten so far on the, uh, the innovation. Uh, Tony, thank you so, so much for uh, your efforts to change the world innovates and for being a guest on the Marketing Futures Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Marketing Futures Podcast. Have an idea for a topic or guest for a future episode? Shoot us a note at marketingfutures at ana.net. 
Be sure to subscribe to the Futures Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, if you're looking to get smart on the future, point your browsers to ana.net slash futures.